Thanks for tuning in to the Crew at UGA podcast. We are so glad to have you with us. Crew exists to call students to know God, grow in their faith, and go to the world. If you would like to get more connected with Crew at UGA, or if we can help you in any way at all, go to the show notes and click on the link, or follow us on Instagram at Crew at UGA. All right, let's get started. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive into our talk. Jesus, we thank you, Lord, um, for your name. I pray, Holy Spirit, that tonight you would show us another one. I pray, Lord, uh, right now uh, that you would show us who you are, show us your character, show us how huge you are, also show us how personal you are, show us how you're fighting for us, and I pray, Jesus, that each and every student here who needs it would experience you freeing them so they can really worship you. I pray for that in your name. Amen. Okay, guys, uh, so we're continuing tonight with our Exodus series. Uh, We're going through the book of Exodus, and as we're doing it, last week, Kyler kind of gave us a promo. He gave us a little preview, and he said, we're going through Exodus, we're going through the Old Testament to prove a point. Um, See, there's a lot of people nowadays in like 21st century America, there's this weird myth that gets passed around Christian circles uh, that the God of the New Testament is nice and cool and fun, and the God of the Old Testament is completely different. He's mean and he's scary, It's like there's two different gods in the Bible, and that's an absolute myth. It's totally false. Uh, The God of the New Testament is the exact same God of the Old, and we're diving into the Old Testament. We're diving into Exodus because according to the the Jews, the people of God who collected and wrote the Old Testament scriptures, um, we're we're, we're looking at uh, Exodus specifically because it's the time and the space, it's the book of the Old Testament that shows the most of who God is. And what you're going to see here as we look into who God is in the Old Testament, you'll notice he's Jesus. They're the exact same person. That's what we're doing tonight. We're diving into the Old Testament to find the God of the new. Um, What we're going to be doing tonight, okay, bear with me, guys. We're about to go through 12 chapters of Scripture. We're not going to actually read 12 chapters of Scripture, but um, the content that we're covering spans 12, almost 12 chapters of Scripture. We're going to be highlighting some moments where, like we said, God shows who he is to his people. Um, so if you come out of this talk, I just want to say this, uh, if you come out of this talk with questions, with confusion, with thoughts, with things you're like, whoa, I've never heard that before, Yes, we'd love you to talk to crew staff, but we'd also love you to actually go to the Bible and read these chapters for yourself. Okay, so that's our challenge for tonight. We're going through a lot of content. We're gonna be taking snapshots. Don't be satisfied with snapshots. They're to make you hungry for more, okay? I'm giving you guys the appetizers. Make sure you don't miss the main course. Um, But we're diving into these moments in Exodus where God reveals his character, and we're gonna begin with this moment that the Jews called the Tetragrammaton, Everyone say tetragrammaton. Yeah, it's hard to say, yeah. You sound smart when you say it. Okay, there you go. The tetragrammaton. It begins in Exodus chapter three. So guys, we're in Exodus chapter three. We're starting in the first verse. Um, It's gonna be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Don't worry. Okay. Now, I wanna provide a little bit of context. Thank you guys. Keep it up there. Um, I wanna provide one little snippet of context. Okay, we've been talking about Exodus. Um, There's this guy named Moses. He gets talked about a lot in Exodus. And there's this thing we do where we think that because Moses gets talked about a lot, he's the main character. It's actually not the case. Moses is just the first eyewitness of God in Exodus. 
So Moses gets this front row seat. Actually, if you read through the whole of the Torah or the first five books of the Bible, at the end in Deuteronomy, it actually talks about Moses writing these down. And it says he writes these down not because he's the main character, but because he just got to be the first guy to witness God showing up in all these crazy ways. Okay, so Moses is out in the wilderness, and this is the first time God shows up and reveals himself. Check this out. We're in verse one. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, but it was not consumed or it wasn't killed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. So Moses said, here I am. Then God said, do not come near, take off your sandals, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Then God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Moses hid his face, or he was afraid to look at God. But the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cries because of their taskmasters. That word can also be translated slavers. I've heard their cry because they're enslaved. I know their suffering. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land to a good place flowing with milk and honey. So we get this first revelation of God and catch this, guys. He reveals himself to this guy, Moses. There's this burning bush. This bush just catches on fire. And Moses is walking around the middle of the wilderness and he sees a bush just spontaneously combust. And he's like, whoa, that's crazy. And then he takes another look and he realizes the fire, which is filled with light, it was the ancient symbol of light and energy and power isn't killing the bush, it's giving it life. Catch that. Power and life and energy isn't killing, but giving life. And he says, that's different. I need to check this out. What's going on here? He goes over and he hears God speak. He says, hey, I'm God. I'm your ancestral God. Now, if you've been paying attention, if you were here last week, you know, Moses was called by God to be the savior of his people, but he didn't know how to do it. He kept trying to figure it out. He kept trying to do this salvation thing on his own, and he couldn't. It actually landed him in a desert, and really bad. So instead, since he can't get to God, God actually comes down to him and says, hey, I'm the one you've been searching for. You couldn't get to me, so I'm coming to you. And then Moses does this, this thing. He, he hears God say this, I've heard my people. Again, you couldn't find me, so I'm coming to you, and I'm coming to you because I've heard the cry of my people. I see their suffering. God is powerful, and yet he's giving life, not killing it. He is God. He's the one that Moses couldn't find for the first two chapters of his story. So he comes and finds Moses, and then again, he says, hey, I'm coming because I've seen my people. I know everything they're going through, and I'm going to deliver them. This is how God first presents himself to Moses, but he doesn't stop there. Moses asks him this crazy 
question. They kind of have this little back and forth, and then Moses asked this crazy question. We're down in verse 13, if you can put it up there on the screen. So Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what's his name? What will I say to them? So God said to Moses, I am who I am. Some of your translations will say, I am that I am. Another one might say, I am the I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. Moses asked this question, and see, guys, in, in 21st century America, we don't really understand how pivotal it is. He asks, God, what's your name? What do we name you? What do you go by? Now, uh, to us, uh, in 21st century America, names are kind of fun. Uh, my wife and I are, are about to have a kid, and we've been throwing names back and forth, and it's been, like, fun, but literally one of the things that, like, when my brother, I was, like, shooting him one of the names, and he was like, Psh, that's way too long, it sounds too much, right? Sound is, like, one of the things we think about when we think about a name, because we don't really care about what the name, like, means, we care about what it sounds like. It's kind of just an aesthetic. In the ancient world, though, they had a very different view of naming. They believed when you named someone or something, you were determining its destiny. To know someone's name, everyone had titles in the ancient world, and you'd go on an average day by your title, but to call someone by their name, there was a cultural obligation they had to pay attention to you. If you knew someone's true name, you had the ability to call on them and they had to respond because their name was their identity, was their destiny. When he asked God for his name, he is asking God, can we call on you for anything? What's your real essence? Who are you really? And God responds with this name. He says, I am the I am. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's this four-letter word. You guys, can you put it up there? Thanks, Elise. In Hebrew, the way you'd pronounce this is either two ways. You can do it either way, v'yavah or Yahweh. And it's really weird because this name, it's a, like a weird like take. It's like a slight little edit on the verb being or to be. What God is saying in this moment, Moses asked for his name and he says, I am existence itself. I am the being who makes being. I am transcendence. I am all power. I am all life. I am all source. I am the end of every mystery. I am everything that is. I am all there is. And you can call on me whenever and I'll pay attention. He says, I'm beyond your comprehension. Uh, to you, I might as well be existence itself. And yet, if you call my name through all generations, I will show up. This is the Tetragrammaton, the first and greatest revelation of God in the Old Testament. He says, I am existence itself, and I'm here when you call me. 
I am bigger than you can imagine. I am more than you can comprehend. And I see your suffering. And if you call on me, I will come. He gives Moses complete access to the source of existence himself. Totally beyond and yet utterly personal. This is the first and greatest revelation of God in the Old Testament. First in Exodus and greatest in the Old Testament. This is the name of God the Father, the person of the Trinity. I am that I am. And you can call on me and I will answer. The first great revelation. He then begins to talk to Moses about something else, though. He doesn't stop there. He tells Moses, hey, 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 uh, I want you to go to Pharaoh. Like I said, I've been seeing my people suffering, and I'm not okay with it. Go to Pharaoh, go into his court, and tell him this. Yahweh says, let my people go that they would worship me. And there's a couple things we miss about this statement if you don't understand the context of Pharaoh and Egypt at this time. Uh, See, first and foremost, in the ancient world, uh, Pharaoh, there's a reason if if you read the Bible, you'll notice Pharaoh isn't called the king of Egypt, he's called Pharaoh. There's a reason. It's because the name Pharaoh was actually a religious term. Pharaoh meant the king of gods in Egyptian. The Egyptian mindset, they believed there was a pantheon of gods and all these gods had real power and they all had their little domain and they worshiped all these gods, but the God above them all was this human being named Pharaoh who had ascended to the level of the gods and these other gods kind of partnered up with him and served under him and he was the God king. And they believed that Pharaoh had an endless lineage, his dynasty of firstborn sons was believed to be divine. They had ascended to godhood. These weren't just human beings, they were human beings who now had divine power and they would use these other gods, lowercase g, as their servants to exert power over the rest of the world and over other people and they'd enslave other people like the Israelites. And the justification was that Pharaoh was God. So when Yahweh says, go into Pharaoh's court and tell him, free my people because they're supposed to worship me, it is a religious declaration of war. He says, Pharaoh, you're not God, and if you get in my way, I will break you. He is throwing down the gauntlet. And not only that, but again, in the ancient world, they would have understood all these gods were real gods. They were real entities, and even the people of Israel actually thought these spiritual beings were real. They were true. You can read about this in Psalm 82. You can read about this in Psalm 86. It talks about Yahweh amongst the council of the lowercase g gods, and it says he created them. He was over them. He's the one true God. He's the only God who's actually God, but all these lowercase g gods, they're real spiritual entities. They have real power. They're just not real gods. I always think it's super funny. Um, I, I get this question at least once a semester from a student who's like really curious. He'll be like, so if Christianity is monotheistic, then why are there other religions? There's only one God. Why are there all these other religions? And I always think it's super funny because I'm like, well, the Bible talks about them all the time. Uh, in the New Testament, they're called demons. In the Old Testament, they're called gods with a lowercase g. But there is this presumption that at the beginning of, of creation, God created spiritual entities and some of them fell, some of them betrayed God, and with our fall, one of, the, one of the things they try and do is deceive us 
and they're actually entities with an actual personality, and they're really good at what they try and do. So of course we'd see these other gods, these other religions. And so again, when Yahweh tells Moses, I want you to walk into Pharaoh's court in front of all of Egypt and say, one, this God that you don't even know exists, that you think is the God of a bunch of slaves and powerless and nothing, get out of his way or he'll destroy you. It's a declaration of war. It's a supernatural declaration of war. And it was a threat to Pharaoh. He was saying, you think you're a human being who has ascended above the gods, but I'm gonna show you who's the real God king. Let my people go or we'll have war. And this is exactly what Moses does. He goes into Pharaoh's court, throws down the gauntlet and says, let these people go to worship Yahweh and to be free or else, or else. And this is what happens. There are these seven, or there's these 10 plagues and before the plagues, there's one sign and over and over again, there's these plagues. And again, one of the questions I get often when we talk about the plagues, and this is the last little bit of context before we get back into the Bible, but I want you guys to hear it. Uh, this one last little tidbit of context. One of the things a lot of people ask me when they see these plagues in scripture, they're like, why is God being so mean? People are getting hurt. Why would a good God wanna hurt people? Let me explain this last little tidbit about ancient Egypt. Um, ancient Egypt was a culture that ran off of what anthropologists would call a power-fear framework. Let me explain what that means. Uh, there are certain cultures that work off of a framework of right and wrong. They wanna know if God is moral or if he's nice, if he's good, if he cares, right? We're like that. When I sit down with a student here at UGA, they wanna know, does God love me? That's not a bad thing. But that's not the framework of ancient Egypt. There's also frameworks that they call honor and shame, which is the question of, is, is God worthy? Is God valuable and does he value my community? And the answer is yes. But again, that wasn't the framework that Egypt was working off of. What Pharaoh and everyone else in all of Egypt would have wanted a God to do if they were really gonna follow him was show if he could like finish on his word. They wanted to know if he was really powerful. And so when God walks up and says, let my people go, or we're at war, the Egyptians actually would have been super eager. They would have been like, yes. Show up, yes, prove to us you're more powerful than our gods and we'll follow you, but we wanna see if you can make good on your word. That's the question they're asking, so it's the presentation of himself that God gives them. And God begins to send these plagues. Now there's something you need to see in each and every one of these plagues. Let's go to chapter seven. We're in Exodus chapter seven. We're starting in verse eight. This is that first sign before the plagues really start in full. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle or show up, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff, cast it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went before Pharaoh and they did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down the staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a snake. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men, another way you could say that, the priests and the sorcerers and all the magicians of Egypt and they did the same thing by their magic arts. For each man cast down his staff and they became many serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. 
Check this out, guys. Uh, there's this scene, the first way, right? God comes in, he says, I'm powerful. He says, I'm going to war. He throws down this staff, right? Moses throws down this staff and it becomes a snake. Now, instantly, instantly, everyone in Egypt who is watching this knows exactly what God is doing. He is throwing down the gauntlet. He's saying, show me your God eater. The first God in the Egyptian pantheon, they called the Hydra, or the God Eater. He was a many-headed serpent. He was a many-headed snake. And whenever Egypt went to war, they always prayed to the God Eater to swallow up the gods that were smaller than him because he was the biggest of all the gods. And so Moses throws this down. They make, he makes a snake. They throw it down. They make many snakes, right? Many-headed snake. And what everyone in the room would have understood in Pharaoh's court is that they were watching a display of what was spiritually happening in like the spiritual reality above them or beyond them. Now, let me give a visual of what's going on for these people. Um, on Saturday, we had a game at Sanford Stadium, right? Some of you guys went there and watched it in person, but a lot of y'all, like me, watched it on TV, right? You watched a display of the game. Now, we know when you're watching a TV, you're not actually watching the game. You're watching a bunch of pixels. You're watching a bunch of electrons and tubes and cords all firing off, and they create a visual display that represents the game to you. So even though you're not watching the real game, you're watching the real game. This is exactly what they would have understood was going on. They were watching a visual display of what the gods were doing in their spiritual realm. And they watch as their God-eater goes up against Yahweh and gets swallowed alive. Imagine these priests of the Hydra, the God-eater, watch as their God is swallowed whole. They instantly, by de facto, facto become atheists. Their God is dead. And they watched him die. If you can imagine that moment what that would be like for an Egyptian. This God who they didn't know if he had any power just ate the God eater and Yahweh says, I'm bigger than anything. Your God just got swallowed. But they don't stop there. Pharaoh, again, his heart is hard or that means his heart won't bend. He still thinks he's a God or above God. The next plague that happens at the end of chapter seven is the uh, Nile gets turned to blood. Now, if you know anything about the Nile or about Egyptian uh, mythology, which I know everyone here just loves studying Egyptian mythology all the time, um, but you'll know that the Nile was ruled by the god Osiris. Osiris was known as the god of resurrection, the god of life, and the god of wealth um, because it was said that he died and defeated death. So Moses goes out while Pharaoh is kind of boating on the Nile on his little like ancient yacht. He walks out and he yells, he throws down the gauntlet again. He says, Yahweh says, let my people go that they would worship me, not you. And Pharaoh says, come on, another God battle, let's go. So Moses takes a little bit of the water from the Nile and throws it on the sand. It's like spitting in the face of Osiris. He dips his staff in and instantly the Nile runs red with blood. The unkillable God dies and Egypt loses another God. And Yahweh says, I am the only God of resurrection. 
I am the resurrection and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Sound familiar? And again and again and again, Yahweh systematically kills every single one of the Egyptian pantheon. The last to fall at the end of the plagues, the ninth plague, is the god Ra. Ra was the god of the sun. He was called the father of light. And he was the father god of Egypt. And every morning, the priests of Ra would wake up to the sunrise and they would wave their hands up and they'd bow before the sun as it was coming up and they'd say, oh Ra, nothing can keep you down until Yahweh says, I'm gonna choke hold him and you will have darkness until I say so. And until Moses says so, darkness covers Egypt. Can you imagine being one of the priests of Ra? Every day, waking up and going to your father God every morning and saying, oh, Ra, nothing, there's darkness. Yahweh can keep you down. And God says, Yahweh says, I am the father of lights. That's how he's referred to in the New Testament. Paul calls Yahweh the father of lights, and this is what he's thinking of. Over and over and over again, God says, one, these dark spiritual forces, I'll go to war for, war for my people. I will destroy each and every one of them. Everything that is getting in the way of my people, I will end it that they would worship me. He's also proving who he is. I am bigger than your biggest God. I am the God of resurrection. I'm the father of lights. I am that I am. And he proves it again and again and again. He goes to war for his people and destroys everything in his path until the Egyptians know who the real God is. The last God to fall is Pharaoh. Remember, the unkillable line of the God kings. Pharaoh, in his arrogance, says, hey, Yahweh killed all my gods, but I'm still a god. Pharaoh comes to him and warns him. He says, everyone, Egyptian or Israelite, who puts a little bit of blood over the top of their door will be passed over. We're gonna talk more about Passover next week. But every single one who just humbles his knee, it's not about if you're a good or a bad person, it's not about if you're Egyptian or Israelite, everyone who trusts me, I will protect them. But I'm coming for the firstborn son of everyone who doesn't. Pharaoh, even you I'll save if you'll just bow the knee, but Pharaoh will not. And the next morning he wakes to find the unkillable line of God kings is destroyed. His firstborn son is taken. He makes good on his word. In the best gospel presentation, a culture that demands a God of power could ever hear. Your God king is not the God king. And there's only one human who is God. There's only, you think that a God could arise to the, or a human being could arise to the level of a God, but I'm a God who comes down to humanity. That's how this works. He proves himself. And at the end, finally, Pharaoh lets the people go. Now catch this, guys. One last little snippet. When the people of Israel finally leave, 
It says they go out and they make a sacrifice to God and they worship him. Let me paraphrase that. In the ancient world, a public sacrifice like that, yes, you killed animals, yes, there was blood, like a blood sacrifice, yes, you prayed, but honestly, it was a barbecue. They ate the sacrifice at the end. They had a giant barbecue, there was tambourines and worship and dancing. God frees them up to worship him and they worship him with the party with the fullness of life. And Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life to the full. He's the same God, the Old Testament and the new. He reveals his name to us. It says in Philippians chapter two, uh, therefore Jesus has been given the name that is above every name. Sound familiar? That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Their names are the same. Speak the name of Yahweh. Speak the very name of existence. He will show up. He is beyond you and yet he cares and he sees your suffering. Speak the name of Jesus and he hears and he will deliver you. The name Yeshua, Jesus, means God saves. He's the same. He's the God who is beyond you. He's existence itself, and yet he hears. He will break any darkness. In the ancient uh, Middle East, when Jesus was walking the earth, uh, all historians agree on this. Jesus Christ is famous for three things historically. Biblical and extra-biblical texts all agree on this. First and foremost, yes, for being a famous teacher. Second, for being a supernatural healer. But the third thing all historical accounts of Jesus, biblical and extra-biblical, agree on is he was famous as an exorcist of spiritual darkness. There was no cultural, supernatural, emotional, internal, or external power that he could not handle. He was bigger than all of it. And he's always been bigger than all of it. From the time he revealed himself as Yahweh, he has always been bigger than all of it. He is more powerful than whatever tries to hold you down. And lastly, again, he's come that you may have life and life to the full. And worshiping him is not a bunch of rules. Remember, he delivers them from the taskmaster that they would worship him. And today he wants to deliver you from religiosity, from anxiety, from fear, from whatever taskmasters are controlling you. He wants to give you life and life to the full that you would worship him because he's Yahweh, the meaning of all existence. Let me pray for y'all. Yahweh, I pray right now, you said that when we invoke your name, you show up. I pray tonight you would show up for each and every one of us, and I pray, Lord, that you would destroy whatever darkness, whatever other gods are trying to hold us back from you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would show up, show yourself to be bigger, mightier, fuller, more than all of it. And I pray, Lord, that tonight you would free every soul in this room up to worship you. Yahweh, we pray this in your name. Amen.